This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability... The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of John Richardson and the Future Notes, where we will be discussing healthcare. I am John Richardson and I am joined by the Future Notes, Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Ed Gillespie. Hello. Welcome aboard if you've heard any of our uh, interviews this week on various regional press, where question one, guys, is always, what is a futurist and what do they do? And can I just say, you handle it with grace and humility every time. I guess you get asked that as often as I get asked, tell us a joke. No. No? Because you're considerably more famous than we are. So I would say that you probably get asked to tell a joke probably a lot more often. Because ah, people yeah. don't recognise us. We don't walk down the street and people don't run up to us and say, oh, what about the efficiency of solar panels then? You know, we don't, we don't get that. Well, you, we do get that on email. The, the email is uh, flourishing. What baffles me about our emails is we're getting a lot of quite uh, specific emails. Uh, people wanting genuine advice on. We get a lot of... I've either just graduated or I'm doing this job and not enjoying it and I want to get into your kind of thing. And you've actually answered it a couple of times, but the questions keep coming in. I guess it's a sign that the podcast is doing something right, that the people listening are inspired to want to do that professionally. So congratulations to you for that. I take no credit for any of it. <laughs> now, here's another thing. I don't know if people who are emailing in are taking the piss with where <laughs> they come from because it started off, I did the New Zealand accent because I level with you week one. We didn't have a lot of emails. And the email we had happened to be from New Zealand. This week, you've had emails from Mexico, Germany, and the USA. Right. And I think people are just trying to get me into trouble. You think they're making it up? <laughs> I think they are, yeah. I think they've got a regular email, and they think, hang on, I know how to get this read out. I'll make it from a country that John can humiliate himself by reading the accent of. And I don't know which email to read based on interest um, because I'm so blinded by the thought of an accent that I can't make an editorial judgment. I think you should read the one from Burkina Faso just so we could test that. Out <laughs> uh, no. Okay. <laughs> this episode we're about to do is one of the ones we've been requested most. It's healthcare. So last week we discussed nature and we started by talking about some of the experiences we've had in nature. It's probably um, relevant this week to discuss what experiences we've had with various uh, systems of health throughout the world. So uh, does anyone want to go first on an experience they've had? I mean, I had, I got pneumonia in uh, Australia out of the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2010. And it was the most grounding realization of how far we've come in terms of I just would have died. I, I don't know when the medication that they gave me came in, but I just would have died of that years ago. Mm -hmm. And then 
I went into a hospital, they gave me antibiotics and I was well within about two days. It's absolutely remarkable. And what humiliates me every time, I don't know the names of any of the people. I feel like I should know every one of their names and I should have them tattooed on my body. But I guess that is the job of being a healthcare professional, that you save lives every day. And those people, by virtue of going on and living their lives, forget about you. But um, it was it was an exceptional experience. Do you think this is a, you, know, you talk about antibiotics and you would have died. Is there, is there a, something similar for dying on stage? Do you think, is there a drug that you take that helps you recover from that? You slowly sort of become immune to that. It's one of those things. It's, <laughs> you, you just become immune to death. And it's happened to me so often now that although on stage, I never really die. Off stage, I'm never really alive. So <laughs> it's a sort of compromise in that sense. Um, my, my, I suppose one of my biggest experiences was I broke my femurs, which is the big bone in the top of your leg. I broke them both clean in half. Oh, um, silly sod. Uh, well, it was, I didn't do it. Um, a, a, a lady had a heart attack whilst um, driving a car. And as we were going across a junction, she went through the sign and, and hit me. And the engine in our little mini lifted up, twisted round, landed on my legs, broke them clean in half. and nearly had them amputated because they couldn't cut me out of the car. And then a rather brilliant uh, ambulance driver said, well, if, he's, if we're going to take his legs off anyway... If we try something, you know, radical, and he, and he, and we damage them in the process, he hasn't lost anything, has it? Uh, and so they they stuck a fire engine on one end of the car, and they stuck an ambulance on them. They literally pulled the thing in half, and luckily the metal came apart, so they could lift me out. And I owe my legs to that gentleman. So um, don't say you know his name because I look like a real piece of shit. Ed, top that, mate. Uh, well, I have effect. I don't think I'm top that, but um, I did effectively shoot myself in the face with a blank. <laughs> Uh, at the age of 16 so i had a a blank pellet from a starter pistol which i was experimentally whacking with a pair of pliers to see if i could make it go bang which i successfully did uh and a whole bunch of metal fragments um shot in in various different directions but three of them managed to go straight into my eye um and i was sort of left with a bit of corneal muscle hanging out through uh or a bit of iris muscle hanging out through my cornea it was on easter sunday and i remember going to the norfolk and norwich hospital with my with my mum in a and e uh and immediately being put on the eye ward which was which was called nelson ward which i thought was a sort of brilliant bit (laughs) brilliant bit of naming apart from anything else Uh. but yeah i had a dramatic cataract Uh, they removed my lens in my left eye and i am effectively blind on my left side Wow. Well, I, I've never been so glad to go first in a round of three anecdotes. <laughs> so let's move on to healthcare. Now, I, I'll, I'll level with you both. I'm anxious here because we start with how fucked are we? And I guess we're going to discuss systems of health and global alternatives. But sitting where we sit in the UK and certainly at this time, the NHS is a sort of protected institution. And I, I'm clamming up at the thought of opening how fucked are we being a sort of criticism of the NHS because it's so ingrained in us not to do that and to believe that what we have is a global institution that people everywhere want to replicate. So the NHS, yes, you're right, is is is, is so deeply embedded in the UK national psyche that it's, it's difficult to talk about it in some ways. But uh, in a ranking of healthcare systems around the world, um, it turns out that the NHS is about 20th. Okay, so, so which, which seems wrong, doesn't it? Because we're so sort of I can't be proud of it. We imagine it's it's sort of you know, in the top three, but it's about 20. Still puts us in the top 10%. Though. So we're in the top 10% of countries? 
yeah, various healthcare systems around the world. And there's all sorts of different methodologies about how you measure how good a healthcare system is. So, you know, um, and the WHO do do these analyses or various think tanks or academia or the OECD or, and, you know, they'll measure things like how responsive is it? How fair is the finance of it? They'll look at life expectancy in your country, what the infant mortality rate looks like, how much the whole thing costs, um, quality of the care you get, you know, is it evenly distributed in terms of its benefits? So if you live in a rural area, you're getting the same sort of care as you might get in a in a, in a city, et cetera, et cetera, numbers of medical staff, blah, 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 all that, all that together. And, you know, when they take all that kind of stuff into account, who's winning? Any guesses? Well, it's always Scandinavia every week. They're the best at everything. Is it the same again? Yeah. <laughs> um, it is. It is. My favourite study, I think the best one, was done um, a couple of years ago by the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. I've just realised what I've just said there. My favourite study about comparing healthcare <laughs> systems. <with Christian. laughs> And I've now realised why it took me so long to form a relationship. Um, anyway, <laughs> this study came out a couple of years ago. It's published in The Lancet. Finland came sixth. Iceland was first, although, as we said in one episode, you have to remember that Iceland is the size of Leicester in terms of people. Um, Norway was second. And uh, one has to wonder, why is Norway getting so good at so many things? Ed, I think you have a story about this. Well, no, I mean, Scandinavian nations always do well in these kind of things. Norway in particular, though, just basically has this enormous uh, oil wealth. So per capita, Norway has roughly the same oil exports as Saudi Arabia. And they have this ginormous sovereign wealth fund. So it's a huge money tap, basically. Uh, it's the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world. Uh, it has about a trillion dollars worth of assets in it. It's actually about 1.4% of all global stocks and shares um, are owned by this Norwegian pension fund. The issue is, and this is one of the reasons why uh, you know, future oil exploration when we go back to energy in Norway becomes so contentious because it's actually helped develop this incredibly progressive nation. Uh, and I, uh, an event last year, described Norway as the drug dealer of the fossil fuel world. Uh, you know, they, they basically power themselves on nice, clean hydroelectric energy, but then sell all the dirty stuff to the rest of us. So they, you know, they don't get high on their own supply. I actually managed to piss off the, the Norwegian finance minister who said... Uh, <laughs> In an interview that I'd given, he said, you know, he actually wrote a formal response saying, you know, my claims were spurious uh, and that if anyone should feel climate shame, it should be those who seek to shut down further Arctic uh, oil exploration. Uh, and it takes wow. a lot. It takes a lot to piss off a Norwegian. Um, and I seem to manage to do it. So is their healthcare system, if they've got that investment, is their healthcare system one of the best because they're just putting that money into healthcare? Do they spend you know, per capita, a lot more than we do. Well, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if there was a correlation between the amount you spent and the effectiveness of your healthcare system, but um, there isn't, um, or not not a very strong. I mean, Norway do spend more per person on healthcare than we do in the UK, actually about 50% more. But Finland, who come in six, they actually spend less than the UK and they perform much better. So they come in six and, and in the Lancet study, the, the, the NHS came in 23rd. And the most extreme is probably the US, which spends the most, if you look at it on any, on healthcare per capita, and they come in 30th. Um, if you took the US health system and, and made it into its own country in terms of how much it was spent, it would be the world's fifth biggest economy. And yet, actually, as healthcare system, as we know, it's, it's pretty terrible. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, there's a great line I came across when we were searching this episode. So the US healthcare system is not broken. It's working exactly the way it was designed. It was just never designed to benefit patients. And I think, you know, that's the, the challenge we keep coming back to in all of these issues where we see actually the system is not designed to actually fulfill 
the purpose it purports to to serve and you know we see that in the energy system the food system and transport system and things we've talked about in previous episodes you know and i think that's the other issues we can't talk about healthcare without talking about food without talking about work without talking about inequality uh, and we're seeing that in the uk right now you know how our societies disadvantage certain groups even when we're supposed to have universal health care uh, you know we've got a very live debate about injustice but in the uk black people are 1.9 times more likely to die than white people of covid19 bangladeshis and pakistanis are 1.8 times more likely indians around 1.5 times more likely and at least part of the explanation for that is these populations have a higher incidence of of being overweight and or suffering from diabetes and heart disease and there's a really strong correlation between these problems and socioeconomic status you know locally deprived areas and access to healthcare facilities so uh, there's a there's a real nightmare that goes on in terms of linking these things and mapping them onto other issues and trends um so obviously the NHS is is one of the sort of great political footballs and the, the broad argument is the more you spend on it the better all our lives will be and the better that system will be. How come a country like Finland is able to spend less and have a better system? And is that something that we can emulate quite quickly? Yes. I mean, we'll we'll get onto that, into the the how do we unfuck ourselves. Yes. I mean, of course, there are no easy answers in in healthcare. But generally, when you find healthcare systems performing badly, there's probably one of two main reasons. Um, One is they're spending the money in the wrong places or uh, the, the system is one where taking into account the profits of various health providers has to be factored in. So, so somebody's taking some extra out. And that's probably the biggest part of the problem with the, the US. If you think about where you spend your money, again, you say that NHS is a political football. What do we do? We spend all our time talking about how many hospitals we're building, you know, and how many doctors we have, um, which is a bit weird, really, because maybe if we were a healthier nation, we might not need those. It's totally insane. I mean, I, I think, you know, we always equate more of those things as better. You know, as if more hospitals equals healthier people or more prisons equals safer communities. You know, Japan has the highest number of hospital beds uh, per capita. So it's about 13 beds per thousand people. But they came 27th in that Lancet study that Mark was just referencing. Uh, and you find all the Scandinavian nations, Iceland, who came top, Norway and Finland, all have around three to three and a half beds per thousand people. And Sweden only has 2.2. Uh, so, yeah. so it makes the point that actually when you have a much healthier nation you just don't need as many hospital beds i'd never thought of that before that we, they have that conversation in america don't they about building new prisons as a way of dealing yeah. with crime when it's such a sign that that's not the solution but you might have a politician over here celebrating the closure of a hospital by saying well i'm delighted to announce that we don't need this hospital anymore because everyone's no. all right and we had Boris going around in the election going well i'm going to be in 40 more hospitals you know read my lips count the number 40 more hospitals it's like yeah, but what we're going to who are we going to fill those hospitals with? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was I was I was doing a, a consultancy job, um, and it was about a complaint system, and and this this company got this amazing complaint system, and people came from all over the world to see how they managed to handle their complaints, you know, and how and they were they were very you know proudly talk about the fact that they could handle you know this many thousand complaints a, a day, and they were all resolved, and and somebody just stood up in my team and went. Why are you getting so many fucking complaints? <laughs> I think you think you've gone about this the wrong way. So why are we why are we in this situation then where without realizing it, we've all sort of sleepwalked into a situation where we're celebrating the sort of unhealthy situation that we're all in as a society? Well, because we're asking the wrong questions. And anyway, that's what we always do with healthcare. I mean, we don't really uh, have healthcare. 
in the country, we have sick care. In fact, that's what a healthcare system is. It, you know, nobody gets paid in a healthcare system if you stay healthy. And so it's about these, you know, perverse measures, isn't it? You know, the more hospitals you build, the more people get to profit from building hospitals, and the more numbers you can stand up and say. But actually, you know, we we spend almost nothing on preventative healthcare in this country. In fact, on average, if you look at the NHS budget, and this is this is pretty much the case across the world, we spend about three percent on what would be considered preventative healthcare, and that's usually on things like screenings and vaccination. And we spend ninety-seven percent on fixing people who were already ill. So then, because you mentioned that the US healthcare system, you, you compared to its own country, its own economy, and you're saying the same here that, you know, we measure it by how much we pay healthcare professionals and how much we spend on hospitals. It is clearly, there's a massive link in our minds between the economy and how much we spend and what we deserve to get back in terms of our healthiness without us being involved in that process. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a single healthcare professional gets paid if you don't get sick. And that provides some pretty perverse incentives, you know, for politicians and, you know, healthcare providers. Um, I was, uh, when I was writing my second book, <laughs> uh, We Do Things Differently, available in all good bookstores, um, I went to look at this uh, project for developing drugs in a new way, which we'll probably talk about a bit later. Um, and the guy who ran that was a guy called Samir Brahmachari, a very eminent professor in, in India. And he used to think that, you know, for instance, the drug companies were, were perfectly fine and they, they were you know, building drugs and making drugs, and that was and that, that was a good thing to do. And he said he had this this watershed moment where he, um, as a younger researcher, had, had worked out that you could do this test, which would tell the drug company if somebody would respond to their drug or not. Uh, and so he said, well, you can have this test, and then if they don't need the drug or they're not going to respond to it, then there's no point in giving it to them. And the people in the healthcare, uh, the drug pharmaceutical company, went, "Don't be ridiculous. Um, don't don't tell us when people don't want it. You know, give us something that will keep the customer paying." And I think, you know, that's that's kind of where we're at. The, the, the drugs industry really is only interested in selling drugs that make a profit. But to play devil's advocate there, is that not because in the sense that I spend time writing at all, I don't then email that out to everyone for, you know, 50p. I, I tour it live and I need that income coming in to justify the work that went into writing it. Do the drug companies not need that money to then fund making other drugs to cure the things that at the moment there's no revenue in and they are just putting the work in. Yeah, well, you'd think, so if they were taking the money they were making from from making successful drugs, um, like Lipitor, for instance, was made by Pfizer, apparently brought them in $141 billion of revenue. It's the second biggest selling product of all time after PlayStation, apparently. Um, but they don't go into the drugs that you know are less profitable or may not make a profit because they don't, they, don't, they don't think like that. You know, One billion people in the world suffering from what they call neglected diseases, diseases which there are no drugs. Tuberculosis, which has become drug resistant. You know, there's, there's hardly been any new drugs for tuberculosis since 1970. And there's hardly been any action from the drug companies on that, even though 4,000 people a day pretty much die from drug-resistant tuberculosis. So that it's not, you know, they're just not set up because they're not charitable organisations, so they will only go and look at things that make a profit. And one of the problems with that is um, that we're not getting any new antibiotics. Well, that is one of the big headlines, isn't it, of our current time is, you know, antibiotic resistance, and we're discussing how fucked are we. So how fucked are we in terms of diseases that are becoming resistant to our one form of treating them? We're so massively fucked as to be like going back to the Dark Ages, massively fucked. Um, Lovely. You, know, uh, <laughs> you haven't mentioned your drink this week. <laughs> Do you know, that was the first time I thought of it as well. And uh, I don't want you to think I don't have one. I Googled this week, because I knew we were talking about healthcare, I Googled healthiest drink. 
And uh, there are obviously a number of sources that you can visit. There's a number of people out there with blogs and relevant information. The first website I clicked on said that tequila was the healthiest drink. So I didn't read any of the rest and I just poured myself (laughs) in tequila. So I have a tequila standing by. Well, okay. Well, if you're going to talk about antibiotics, pour yourself a pint because... Oh, God. um, I'm going to have one now. As we have found with, you know, influenza, diseases, pathogens, they evolve. They evolve around the drugs we have for them. And so we are looking at new forms of typhoid, malaria, uh, influenza, which is very topical, of course, uh, and E. coli, which is responsible for all sorts of conditions, diarrhea, urinary tract infections, respiratory illnesses, pneumonia. I mean, there's all these drug-resistant new versions of these bugs coming, and they're not just coming for people in the global south. You know, they're now uh, coming and, and affecting you know rich Westerners as well. We don't have these basic antibiotics. And nobody, well, very few people, especially in, in the big pharma world, are looking into new antibiotics because they'd rather make drugs for, you know, obesity and hair loss because those are the ones that make the money. That felt like a personal jibe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> typhoid. I mean, to go, I, I, I've drunk one tequila, I've bought a second, and I am, yes, I'm getting fatter and bolder. Yeah. Typhoid is coming back. Well, drug-resistant typhoid, yeah. You know, diseases <sighs> evolve. If you if you ask the question, then where is the where are the new antibiotics going to come from? Thirty five percent of our medicines today come from natural compounds, but it's predicted that about seventy percent of our new medicines will. You know, even though we talk about a lot of artificial drug development, we're still getting the vast majority of our new drugs from natural sources, which takes us back to our concerns about climate change uh, and the protection of nature and the encroachment of humanity and farming on wild ecological spaces, because it's not just the risk of zoonosis, you know, these, these um, viruses jumping species, um, as we're experiencing at the moment with COVID-19, but it's destroying irreplaceable cures that we haven't even discovered yet. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's really like a wanton vandalism, which may well be a part of our undoing. Yeah. And so we've got the marketization is the problem. Again, you know, we keep coming out this episode after episode is when you marketize something and you and somebody can make a profit out of it, you get these very perverse incentives. So that something that actually would be hugely beneficial for society, as in new antibiotics, are not being developed because the market doesn't see the necessary incentives in it. I mean, because one of the problems with antibiotics is if you get a new antibiotic, you actually want to use it as little as possible. They're drugs of last resort because otherwise the bugs evolve around it. So what you're asking drug companies to do is create a drug and then ask people to use it as sparingly as possible. And of course, that's totally antithetical to their business model, which is I want people to use it as much as possible. And also, as a public good, you'd want antibiotics to be cheap so that everybody can get them. And again, that's not good for profits either. So, you know, it's, it's, it's back to your point, John, it'd be like asking you to, you know, slave over the finest stand-up set ever, you know, spend years rehearsing it and then do, do a one-off gig at Swindon Arts Centre for a fiver and then bin all the material. <laughs> I enjoyed uh, the return of typhoid. Uh, I enjoyed the idea that we're not developing antibiotics because it's not profitable. I, I, I particularly enjoyed the idea that I can't even celebrate the building of a new hospital or the funding of the NHS, because actually that is indicative of the fact that we have an increasingly unhealthy nation that needs treatment rather than a celebration of the treatment we can offer them. That was lovely. Um, I'm sufficiently depressed. Let's (laughs) get some background information on why I'm depressed, how we got this fucked, and then please, God, uh, let's have some answers on how we unfuck ourselves. So how did we get into this system? How did it get this bad? How did this get this sick? Well, because the modern world 
is very, very good at making you sick. And so we, as I've said, we don't really have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system. So, I mean, if you think about the UK, for instance, seven out of 10 men and six out of 10 women are overweight or obese. So being overweight now in the UK is a normal state of affairs. It's not exceptional. 29% of us are actually obese. 11,000 hospital admissions a year are directly attributable to obesity with over 700,000 where obesity is a factor. 4 million people in the UK have type 2 diabetes, which is entirely down to lifestyle choices, you know, by just eating unhealthily. And about 14 billion pounds is spent a year just on dealing with that alone, which is about 10% of the NHS budget. So what we're looking at really is a sick care system that's based around trying to get you better, but you live in a society that is actually structurally designed and incentivized financially to make you ill. And that's the problem we've got. So it doesn't it doesn't matter how much money you throw at the NHS, if you're still going to get more and more people turning up fatter, unhealthier, with diabetes and you know, all these other conditions that are really a symptom of the modern way of living and the fact that people want to sell us shit rather than, than let us be healthy because, you know, actually being healthy doesn't cost anything and people and that's not very sellable to. I was gobsmacked to read, you know, when you're on your diabetes point, Mark, that every week 170 people in the UK lose a limb because of diabetes. You know, so this idea of 170 people having an amputation as a result of that illness, I mean, that that's just shocking in itself. Yeah, and then you think about the the cost to the economy. So we lose, on average, the average working person loses 30 days a year to illness of some sort or another, which has been estimated about nearly £80 billion lost to the economy as well. So, you know, we're just very, very, very unhealthy. Now, I'm I'm going back to, I remember at the beginning of this saying, I'm, I'm anxious that part of this might be a criticism of our current health system because we're not trained to do that. And now I'm definitely shoulders tense and i think back to martin who has become a regular email correspondent of ours who emailed in last week to say you know i'm center or center right i'm not you know i don't want to become a dreadlocked person living in a renovated old ambulance (laughs) i think he's hearing this saying what you're telling me is there are just too many fat people and that that is a burden on our economy I had a line in in my stand-up years ago saying, you know, the reason that we get in from work and sit and eat Vianetta by the fistful in front of the telly is not because we're enjoying our lives. There's there's so many factors as to why we become unhealthy and overweight. Is it a separate debate to healthcare? Because I feel like what we're doing is saying it costs this much to treat these people, but the reason these people are in that situation is something entirely different to healthcare, or is it the same thing? Well, Wendell Berry said this quite well. He said, people are fed up with a, a food system that knows nothing about health and a health system that knows nothing about food. So we're sold crap. We're also increasingly asked to do sedentary jobs. And, and you are right, though, that you know everybody really has a personal responsibility for their own health. But if you grow up in a culture where that's not the thing to do, or everybody else around you is not doing it, then then you get this kind of society that breeds an unhealthy attitude. If it was just down to knowledge, okay, about keeping yourself healthy, all of us would be in incredible shape because everybody knows, don't they, what it takes to be in great, great shape. You know, you have a balanced diet, you eat lots of fruit and veg, you exercise regularly. I mean, we all know it, but we don't do it. None of us do it. I mean, uh, let me ask you a question, John. Do you keep to the recommended 14 units of alcohol uh, the medical profession suggests is the maximum that a man of your weight and age should drink? Um, Per podcast. (laughs) I reckon I just about do 14 units per podcast, yeah. But the hilarious thing is those recommended limits actually vary by nation. Uh, Mm. Because if if you were a Spanish man, 
and I know you're a fluent Spanish and speaker. I can be. You can be a Spanish man. Then the recommended recommended alcohol <laughs> units per week is 35 units. So, muy uh, bien, muy bien. so you can have your <laughs> steady. Cerveza, por favor. And I think that, but that, but that's precisely the point. You know, it's like you joke and say, "Yeah, I do my fourteen units per podcast." It's because you know we merrily love a binge, whereas the the Spanish gentleman will be uh, they're both drinking five units a day, but maybe you know two at lunch, a little uh, and two at dinner, and then maybe a little cognac after, afterwards. Well, moving away from drink, because it makes me uncomfortable. I go back to that point you were saying about it, that there's an economic reason. I mean, we're all at the moment. I am not going to the shop, and I must admit I'm guilty because of the fortune I've had in my life. When I go to the supermarket, I put stuff in the trolley and I pay at the end. I'm shopping online now. Everything I click, I'm aware of the various options in a way I'm, I'm probably not when I'm sort of listening to a podcast and pootling around the supermarket. And I click organic where I can. And that doubles the price of every item that I choose. So it, it, it's a sort of fine. I have to pay more to not have shit sprayed onto the food I eat. So it is a massive cultural and societal and economic problem, isn't it? In terms of being healthy, we we charge people more to live healthily. And then you doubly benefit people who are already wealthy enough to eat those foods and therefore probably have a less strained life, also eat the healthiest foods. Yeah. And if you go to the poorest areas, um, what you'll find is that we find this concept of food deserts. So food desert isn't that there isn't any food, but it just means that you have to travel further to get to a decent grocery store and get a selection of stuff. And when you get to that grocery store, there probably won't be as much as if you know there isn't, I don't know, East Dulwich Waitrose or whatever. Uh, and you'll probably have to pay more for it. And there's a brilliant book, which I recommend everybody reads. It's called Pharmacology, with an F at the beginning, Pharmacology by uh, uh, Daphne Miller, who's a doctor. And she looked at the relationship between food and health, which is actually it's a bit of a grey area. You know, doctors don't really talk about they don't prescribe, you know, cooking or anything or any of that kind of stuff, or you know, learning where learning where your food comes from. And uh, she said, if you looked at a map of where these food deserts are in America, she said it's almost identical to one showing zones the lowest life expectancy, the highest rates of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. So you've got this cultural problem of not giving people access, even as you say, to the to stuff where they could get healthy food, and you're getting this incredible healthcare or sick care burden as a result of that. Now, that to me, to put on my knee-jerk liberal hat, that seems instantly solvable that you, you know, you just stop. Because it's true, you, you drive through areas where socioeconomically people are least well off. And what you see is the worst kind of food, the most takeaways. You see the most gambling adverts and bookmakers and things like that. That surely is governmentally very easy to, you know, either tax those companies more in those areas or you subsidize companies to go in there and sell the kind of things that you're talking about. Is that not an easy solve? Well, it's yes, that's, that's what you think, isn't it? And that I think everybody would think that, okay, well, you know, let's have tax breaks for you know, grocery stores in certain areas or we'll, we'll work out a way to incentivize farmers' markets or whatever. And they've tried it in various countries and it turns out people don't change the way they shop. They still buy the same food. They probably just get it a bit cheaper. So it's it's then becomes it's not just a cultural problem in terms of where you cite stuff, but if you grow up eating a certain way, then you tend to carry on eating that way. So it's an it's more of an educational problem. When you think about how food is marketed to kids, this is one of the things that really upsets me. Okay, unhealthy food that's marketed to kids, there is six times as much money spent on marketing unhealthy food like crisps and snacks and whatever to kids than marketing healthy food. And if you get into the culture. The mindset of that's what you eat, it's very hard to get out of that. I mean, I've, I've done it myself. You know, I've been on this journey trying to change my lifestyle 
you know, for the last few years, you know, getting healthier and eating healthier and, you know, exercising more. And, you know, you still find yourself going, oh, God, I'm going to have some frazzles and two pints of beer when really you know you shouldn't because you, you've, you've just got that attitude ingrained inside you. So this brings us full circle back to the perverseness of the system because what's happening now is that we are now being sold drugs for obesity. So the farm industry has gone and realized, oh, there's lots of people getting fat in rich countries. Uh, there's a market there. We can sell them drugs to help them consume less or, 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 or make fat go through their body in certain ways or whatever, so they don't put on so much weight. I mean, it's totally perverse, isn't it? You know, got a society that makes you ill and unhealthy, puts a massive burden on the healthcare system. We don't have antibiotics, but you can get drugs for obesity. It's totally, totally fucked. The worst example of that was it wasn't even a drug. Uh, I remember doing some work years ago on a on a product called Alestra, which is basically a zero calorie fat substitute, which was again one of those innovations was supposed to be helping you like tackle a lifestyle cure. So basically if you're eating too many snacks, we'll reduce the the fat in the oil so you can carry on snacking yourself into oblivion. The only problem was this stuff caused what they rather politely tried to call fecal incontinence. Um, other, <laughs> otherwise known as anal leakage, uh, which was Ugh. obviously somewhat off-putting um, if you were planning a snackathon, uh, and no amount of marketing was going to overcome that. Going back to what you said about how much more money is spent advertising crisps and chocolate than the other foods, what are the other foods? And because it would never occur to me that somebody would advertise an apple because an apple just exists. So that's a link that I just don't think many of us make. That. Are you saying it's a, a government, instead of investing certain things in certain drugs, should be saying, let's advertise fruit the way we advertise crisps? And do you think, I just can't see that making a difference, would you? Everyone knows apples exist. They're just not as nice as Mars bars. <laughs> and there we have the problem. I mean, I think the marketing of stuff to children, because that's, that's where you pick up how you eat for the rest of your life generally. It's kind of formed in that early period and if your parents don't eat healthily that's one thing but if you're also being marketed crisps and snacks and you're eating those outside the house then you you, you just get yourself into this vicious circle and i think that we really should probably be looking at banning advertising of unhealthy foods to children because it just makes economic sense if those kids grow up to have an unhealthy lifestyle then they end up being you know part of the 10 percent of the people who've got type 2 diabetes that are costing the, the nhs 14 million pounds a year See, this is just a conversation that but I think most people, when they clicked on this episode about healthcare, would not have expected that two thirds of the way into it, we're having a discussion about how you educate people to understand food better and to feed a generation of kids better so they eat better. I don't think we, whether it's in this country or societally, see the link between. And when you explain it, of course, it's obvious, but it doesn't feel like that is the conversation that we have in the run up to an election or when we make our choices about you know how to vote or how to spend our money in this country no no we're talking about how many hospitals we're going to build rather than why we're all so fat i was just licking the uh, lemon off my fingers because i had another tequila um, <laughs> but i'm still under my 14 units per podcast so i think i'm all right aren't i um so these all the work that's gone into creating these drugs that treat obesity, presuming that's a complex thing to find something that you can consume, which understands what in your body it can take out and what it has to leave in. 
that is surely energy that could have gone into creating a new antibiotic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But as we said, there's no incentives really for for making antibiotics because you want them to be cheap, which means there's not such a profit motive for it. And if, when you've got antibiotics, you want to use them as little as possible. To be fair to drugs companies or any drugs researchers, making drugs is fucking difficult. Okay, they are they are very hard things to develop and therefore expensive to develop. I mean, with all due respect to the people around the table, you know, it's a lot harder than coming up with ninety minutes of, you know, dishwasher and knob gags, or putting together a weekly <laughs> podcast. Because the thing is, what, and when I was researching this for my second book, what you realise is that drugs have to do stuff that's actually impossible. Or you know, it's, they have to do several impossible things. It's actually quite easy to kill bacteria, for instance. You know, uh, Donald Trump was right when he said, yes. you know, you can use you can use bleach for killing coronavirus. It's perfectly and right. There weren't many people saying that at the time. So credit yeah. to you, Mark, for willing yeah. to go back in time and say, do you know what? Fair play. He was bang on there. That's, this is why, why drugs are difficult, because he's right that, you know, bleach will kill coronavirus because it will kill everything. That's how they advertise it. Bleach <laughs> kills everything. But, but, you know, the problem is that poor Donald is not really much of a systems thinker, uh, which is a bit of a problem. I'm actually the greatest systems thinker. Uh, I know several <laughs> systems. Uh, Sega Mega System. <laughs> so, so yes, Donald's right. Bleach can kill coronavirus. But the, the problem is that Bleach, like Donald, actually just lacks discernment in that it can't tell what's a virus and what's a bit of your stomach. Um, and so it will, you know, this is why you don't drink it as medicine because it kills everything. So you've got to find something that the, the drug can get into your body without damaging it, right? It's then got to go and find whatever the bad bit is, the cancerous cell or the bacteria or whatever, and kill them and do as little damage as possible on its way through. And then when it gets inside, it has to do something that's officially going to render its target impotent, you know. And it's not like the, the bacteria is going, well, you know, come in here, punch me this way, and that'll be the most effective way to kill me. So it's, it's and all of that has to be done in this slippery, warm world of human chemistry at kind of body temperature. So it is, it is insanely difficult to make drugs. Mm. So is that why we're focusing on these other ones? Because when we talk about antibiotics, I picture like you know, the stuff I learned about in schools that grew on Petri dishes without being realised. I don't picture people working on them now. So when we talk about them being resistant now, mm. I still think, well, of course, because they're ages ago, they were, you know, cowpox era is antibiotics. But in theory, we could be making them now. Yeah, we could be, but we're not. And actually, as an aside, I'm not sure that Alexander Fleming should have won the Nobel Prize because he did discover penicillin, but he only discovered it because he had a very messy fridge. Yes. And I'm not sure that's Nobel Prize worthy myself. I think that's very controversial probably for our Scots listeners. A few more John Richardsons throughout history, you wouldn't have antibiotics. That's so right. I'd have been yeah. in that fucking fridge with the antibacterial wipes, <laughs> which hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> yes. They were just called wipes then. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they are hard to make drugs. In fact, the industry calls a new drug, they call it the magic bullet because it has to do all these incredible things. And there is a statistic in the drugs industry that for every 5,000 potential compounds that enter the drug development process, only one of them will end up being an actual drug that you can buy and prescribe. And so drug companies basically say, well, look, we've got to factor in the cost of the 4,999 that fail into the cost of that one. Okay, And it's almost like that statistic is like, look, see how hard it is? This, you know, Don't get us. It's a really hard thing to do. Basically, they say on average that a new drug, when you factor all those problems in, comes in on average with a price tag of about $3 billion to produce. And therefore, they've got to recoup that $3 billion, which is a huge amount of money because drugs are so difficult to make. That's their argument. Short of accusing them of trying 4,000 that don't really work so they can say, look, we tried 5,000, but 4,000 was just like rubbing a melted galaxy on something. <laughs> that seems a reasonable argument to me, is it not? It's sort of reasonable. 
I mean, drugs are hard. There's no getting away from that. They are expensive to develop, but they shouldn't be this expensive. And there was an interesting study done a few years ago which looked at the productivity of the drugs industry. And what it unveiled was that the drugs industry has had this massive decline in productivity. So adjusted for inflation, for every billion dollars that the drugs industry used to spend on research and development, we used to get about 30 drugs. And now we're getting a third of a drug. So something's gone very wrong there. It's almost like reverse progress, isn't it? It's it like is. sort of Moore's law. Don't they call it Iram's law? They do. Yeah, so Moore's law is that kind of doubling of computer processing power every two years, which is why we've got smartphones which have about the same capacity as the entire computational system of the Apollo space program. But what you're describing, Mark, is like that's a reverse effect. It's like we're getting a fraction of the drugs for a doubling of the money. Yeah, and they call it Erium's Law, which is kind of a joke, you know, the spelling of Moore's Law backwards. At the current rate of approving drugs now, because we're getting so few for the money we're spending, because we're approved between 20 and 50 a year. And there's 7,000 diseases out there that need some kind of intervention. So it's going to take over a century to get the drugs that we already need. And of course, a lot of the diseases that we need drugs for are affecting people in the global south and the poorest people. You know, So the whole system is broken, basically. Why, if we're putting more money in and the need is so great, is there such a drop in productivity? Well, that's a hotly contested topic. That was one of the things they tried, actually, after the melted galaxy. A uh, hotly contested <laughs> topic. I thought the raisins might help, but make a difference. So all of those arguments hold some water in that, you know, actually legislation has got more cautious and complex and it creates these sort of big hoops that drug companies have to get through to get something approved. There is something in that. But the other thing is, of course, that drug companies don't really share their knowledge because they're all competing. So you could have whole research teams working on, say, a particular cancer drug and they'll never talk to them and never share their research because they want to be the first ones to market. To mm. give them. Another argument is that actually, well, you know, we've had all the easy stuff. We've got the drugs that were easy to develop and actually these, these new ones that we need are harder because they're coming later, the easy ones we did first, you know. And they all hold water to some degree, those arguments. But the real reason is that basically drug companies got so fat on massive profits that they stopped innovating. So they've got these huge revenues coming in from you know anti-cholesterol drugs and things like that. And what happens, and Ed and I see this time and time again in our work, is if you get rich, you get lazy. I remember a conversation I had with a very senior pharma executive. She's on the board of one of the biggest pharma companies in the world. She said, the problem with our industry, Mark, is that success has bred mediocrity. So one of my other people that I work with is Medicine Sans Frontier. And if you go and talk to them, they're saying the idea that it's going to take three billion to make a drug is actually ridiculous. It's just that they're going about it the wrong way. They're duplicating expenditure. They're not really looking at doing stuff in new ways. And they reckon MSF have set up this thing called the Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative. And they reckon it shouldn't cost three billion. They reckon actually you could produce a new drug for about 200 million. I mean, it's still a lot of money. It's still difficult, but that's an order of magnitude differences. So actually, drug companies now spend twice as much on marketing than they do on R&D. So they're not drug companies anymore. They are marketing companies. Businesses. I'd never thought of that before, that how could you possibly copyright and keep secret the work you're doing to cure things like cancer without there being some sort of malevolent force at work? Why wouldn't you share that in the interests of helping everybody move forward. Yeah, and it's worse than that. I mean, you know, drugs are not a consumer product, you know, like clothes or makeup or cosmetics. You know, it's like the brand identity of a drug should be totally irrelevant. It's actually just about the efficacy. Does it bloody work? One of the key weaknesses here is that marketing in medicine arguably exists to actually pervert evidence-based decision-making. We're getting the best marketed drugs rather than the ones that work the best. 
Anyone fancy moving on to the happy bit at the end? <laughs> By which I mean, I know nothing here. Please tell me you two have some uh, aces up your sleeve in terms of the final section of the podcast, which is how we unfuck ourselves. That all felt very bleak. Who wants to go first in making me feel better? The really key thing we should do. So if you think about the episode on nature we did last week, it actually turns out that exposure to green spaces like public parks or forests is linked to the lower risks of all sorts of ailments common in the developed world in particular. You know, so whether it's cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, mental distress, even mortality, you know, we can map like I was saying right at the beginning, the more green space in your area, the healthier you are likely to be. And we know this because as you were experiencing, John, and you're camping out in the garden, you know, your blood pressure drops, your heart rate decreases, your immune function improves, and your parasympathetic nervous system basically directs the body to rest and digest. It's the ultimate antidote for the stress and anxiety and mood swings and aggression that we can often get in high-intensity urban environments. And the best study we have which is by Matthew White at the University of Exeter, who used a Department for Environment research involving 20,000 participants over several years, showed that actually just a minimum of two hours a week in nature or in a green space led to a significant uplift in self-reported good health and well-being. And it didn't matter if it was one long day, you know, two sessions of an hour or so, or even just short daily bursts. And we think the kind of core of this is to do with a part of the brain called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is actually... I loved their second album. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anal leakage played a guest solo, I think. It was a wild solo. (laughs) But the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis regulates the secretion of cortisol which is our stress hormone. And it's the dysregulation of cortisol, which is associated with so many different malign disease outcomes. And so we know that spending time in nature changes our ability to focus our attention after a sort of long and cognitively demanding day. It also exposes us to microorganisms that might also boost our immune function. When we're seeing that, not just in the fact that when we put our hands into soil, we get the similar oxytocin empathy love hormone released as we do when we hug someone but actually the japanese have done quite a bit of research on what they call forest bathing which is shinrin yoku which is a poetic way of saying walking in the woods but they found that aerosols from the forests whilst inhaled during a walk actually lead to elevated levels of natural killer nk lymphocyte white blood cells in the immune system which help fight tumors and infections and they've even found that if you take essential oils from cedar trees spray them into a hotel room where people are sleeping you also get a significant spike in these white blood cells these killer cells which take out these tumors and other problematic infections and so it really is quite clear there's a whole emerging body of correlatory and increasingly causal relationships between time spent outdoors relaxing and recuperating in nature for both our mental and physical well-being it's no surprise that the committed environmentalist is basically saying that what you need to do is go and hug a tree, basically. Yeah. <laughs> we come back to this time and time again in this podcast that we've lost connection with the natural world. You know, we've separated ourselves from it. And it's having this huge detrimental effect on every aspect of our lives, whether it's the way we generate energy, the way we think about ourselves. Yeah, so this disconnection is at the root of so many of our problems. But I'm going to go a bit more practical than just going and tree hugging. And I do think that we need to shift some of those budgets from, you know, these gargantuan healthcare budgets. And you think three or 4% spent on prevention, that's totally perverse. So we've got to get to a national policy of actually saying, 
we are going to do healthcare, not sick care. I quite like the idea of actually paying the health profession for keeping patients out of hospital. Wouldn't it be great if you were incentivized to say, you know, the fewer people who go into hospital, the more you get paid. Now, I'm obviously not talking about a kind of a Monty Python Black Knight version of this. <laughs> You've got another eye, haven't you? Don't piss yeah. about with bullets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But if we incentivized our health on how few people went to hospital, I think that would be you know, an interesting experiment. But I actually emailed my oldest friend, this guy I met on my first day at primary school, an amazing chap called Jules Connor, and he's done various things. He's been a scientist or whatever, but he's decided to become a paramedic. And he's a brilliant paramedic. He's one of the top flight paramedics in the UK. I emailed him. So we're doing this episode on healthcare. And he said, well, I just have shed loads of emphasis on preventative medicine. He wrote, we just should be educating people and investing in exercise. And he wrote in the episode, he said, tackling type 2 diabetes isn't going to be helped when processed meat nuggets are cheaper than salad. And this is why the Scandinavians do so well on healthcare spending and effectiveness. It's because if you look at places like Sweden and Norway and Finland and Iceland, as Ed was saying earlier, they're just generally healthier places to live and they have cultures of looking after themselves better. And they also think about that in their policy. So the one of the reasons that beer is so expensive in those countries is because it's heavily taxed because they see that as a preventative way of reducing the burden on their healthcare systems. Is it um, in a world where there's a sort of limited part and we're about to see the economic consequence of the situation we're in regarding lockdown and things. Where there is a limited pot, is there not an argument that less is spent on prevention because there is a need to spend so much more on the front line? How do you start shifting that money away from... I mean, that money's being spent. There's no question about it. That money's all being spent in the hospitals. Where does the money come from to start spending on prevention rather than cure? Well, there's two things there. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, you, you don't want to be saying to people, no, sorry, Mr. Diabetes sufferer, you can't have your insulin because we're busy creating a vegetable club for local kids. You know, people are always going to focus on the immediate problem. Hmm. But actually, you look at a lot of the solutions, actually, they're quite cheap. So things like social prescribing, where you can go to the doctor and the doctor will say, actually, what I'm prescribing for you is a two-hour walk in a forest. And here is, you know, a ticket that I can pay for your money. And I'm, there's a forest and I go out there and, you know, or here's some gardening. And those things are actually really cheap. And a lot of health insurance companies are actually encouraging those now, aren't they, in terms of reducing your health insurance premiums. Yeah. And that leads on to the other thing, which is so cheap, and yet we keep destroying it, which is this idea of social cohesion. And the more socialised you are, the more support network you have around, the more friendly you are, the more you know people in your community, Actually, that turns out to be the biggest indicator of whether you're going to live a long and happy life. Yeah, loneliness is right up there with heavy smoking and obesity as a killer. And it can actually increase your risk of death by as much as like 25%, which is you know, especially relevant in these strangely physically isolated times. Mm. And that's basically because the cortisol we were talking about earlier, the stress-based inflammation in the body knackers your immune response. And as well as that, you know, the social isolation dramatically affects our cognitive abilities. And there was a big meta-analysis came out a few years ago. They looked at all these health studies and looked at the effectiveness of various interventions on your health and longevity you know giving up smoking having a body mass index in a certain range you know quitting drinking all this kind of stuff and all those things had an impact you know quitting smoking does have a positive impact drinking less does have a positive impact having a healthy diet does but the top three things that came out on that list pretty much were social relationships the quality of your social relationships had the biggest effect on whether you were going to be healthy and happy for the longest time and what you look at in our world is that we've said that social cohesion parks bringing people together is just too expensive 
And actually, it turns out to be the cheapest thing we can do, such that we could have a healthcare system as good as Norway's because there'd be less people going into it if we spent a bit more time upfront having a better time together. So what we need is a greener nation or a nation where people get out into the greenery more. And we need a friendlier nation. If we were more friendly and relaxed with each other, we'd probably be doing a great service. And actually, John, it strikes me that when you do a gig, it's probably hard to measure, but you're probably having a very positive effect on the health of those people in there. So you are, in fact, a doctor of comedy. I mean, what you are leading to here is a very dangerous conversations about comedians as people who provide health benefits, receiving tax benefits. And there have been a number of my colleagues who have taken the option of paying a rate of tax that they feel is relevant for the good work that they do. And that's not an argument I saw made at the time. But perhaps comedians shouldn't pay tax because, as you say, we reduce the burden on the health service so much. Mm, well, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, there are certain comedians, I think, that probably raise people's stress levels. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I'm still, and I loved all that stuff about proactive healthcare and prevention. I'm still feeling an anger inside me at the drug industry and the state we've allowed that to get into. Is there any suggestion there on how we unfuck that system? Yeah, I mean, if you look, for instance, antibiotic research, most of that stuff is down to being done by much smaller companies and academia because they're less obsessed with profits. But there are alternative models of drug development that are coming up. And in my second book, I wrote about one called Open Source Drug Discovery, which I went to see in India, where Samir, who I mentioned earlier, basically was trying to think about trying finding new drugs for tuberculosis. And what that is, is kind of a crowdsource version of drug discovery. So if you want to create a drug, it would make a really good sense to model the bacteria, for instance, that you're going to, to go after. So like, we don't build airplanes in the workshop now. We build them in computers first and we simulate everything. And then when we've got a really good thing, oh, that's it, then we go and build it. Same with cars. But we're still building drugs mostly in the Petri dish. So what Samir was saying, he's saying, well, why don't we create you know, simulations of all these diseases and then we can sort of model which drugs would work if we had a proper old simulation. Now, the problem with that is making a simulation of anything is an absolute nightmare. If you know anything about systems biology, even the most simple bacteria is an absolute complexity fest. It's impossible to do, which is why one organization, even a drugs company, a very rich one, can't do it. In fact, what Samir told me was in order to do it, you'd have to go and read every single scientific paper ever written about tuberculosis ever, which is about 25,000 scientific papers. You'd have to extract from that all the relevant data, check which papers had actually good science you could take something out. And then you'd have to layer that data around the genetic code of tuberculosis. It's called genome annotation. It's basically saying, you know, oh, I now understand having read these papers that this gene gets switched on here under these conditions or whatever. It's an incredibly complex thing to do. It is done in medicine, but it's a very labor intensive and very hard thing to do. You'd have to do all that in some kind of computable form. You have to store that information in a way that a computer could read. And then you'd have to go and build a simulation. And Samir said, we'd started trying it in my institute. We worked out it was going to take us 400 years. And then one of his colleagues, Anshu, said, well, why don't we crowdsource the reading of the papers? Why don't we get students across India to do the genome annotation for us? And everybody said, that's ridiculous. Students won't be able to do it. It's really hard work. They're too busy being students. It'll never work. But they did. So she created this, along with her colleague Vinod, a crowdsourced system for students to read these papers, do the genome annotation and send it back. And they came up with a complete genome annotation of tuberculosis in four months. So, you know, from what they thought was going to be 400 years, they managed to do it in four months. It was all checked five times over. One of those annotators was this brilliant guy called Rohit. He was invited to come to Delhi and he turned it into a simulation with some help from Samir and they switched it on. 
And almost immediately, they found 11 new ways to attack tuberculosis that had never been seen before. And as of now, they've already found four drugs that are already on the market for other things that they think can be used to attack tuberculosis. So that's basically four drugs they've got for free. Their entire budget so far, I think, is less than 20 million. Wow. So that, I think, you know, just shows if you think about it differently, you can suddenly change the outcomes by orders of magnitude. So what can I do? Last week, you markedly made my life better, the pair of you. And we always end by asking the individual, the listener, I'm probably not going to create a computer system that replicates a problem we've had for many years. What can I do personally this week to better my health care? I keep it simple. I think nature and laughter are the best medicine. You know, these things give you, boost your endorphins. They act as antidepressants, increase our social bonding and relationships, our brain connectivity. They're good for our heart and in every sense. And I think we should be dose prescribing ourselves the exercise, the fitness, the connection with nature, the socializing. And so I think I would say run through the woods laughing with your mates, preferably naked. Well, I feel like Ed suggested camping out last week, so it would be unfair for me to do what Ed suggests two weeks in a row. You just trying to get out of running naked laughing yeah, through absolutely. the with your mates. <laughs> I don't know the measurable cost on my health of getting arrested for getting my knob out in my local woods. But Mark, do you want to suggest anything that won't get me a criminal record? Well, Put me on the front page of the mirror. What we're really talking about with health is the more healthy you are, the less of a burden you're going to be on the healthcare system, which is what you want, and you will live a longer and happier life. So one of the best ways, John, that you can become healthy healthier is to become a woman because women live on average five years longer than men there's all sorts of suggestions to why this is they're less violent they look after themselves better they take less silly risks they're generally more socialized they generally get out in nature a bit more they generally have or have had jobs that involve less physical labor and they're less often in the armed forces they're less subject to being casualties of war all that kind of stuff so being a woman could you think you could do that this week is that possible I don't know. I've got a couple of things in this week. In terms of, you know, the sort of not doing so much physical labour, I pretty much nailed that for the last 37 years. Being more socialised, I might struggle with that one. That's a long time coming. I'll talk to Lucy this week. I'll give her a little nod in the kitchen. That, I guess, helps. Well, another option is you could chop off your balls. Um, I can do that now. <laughs> no, but this, uh, this really made me laugh. One of the reasons that they think men might take more risks and you know be more susceptible to accidents and stuff is because of testosterone and how it affects our behaviour. And data from the Imperial Court of the Chosen Dynasty in Korea was analysed by scientists. And it revealed, if you looked at it, that the court eunuchs actually ended up living for about 70 years, which back then was a huge lifespan. So overall, they were like 130 times more likely to celebrate their 100th birthday than the average man living in Korea at the time. So, you know, chop off your balls. And it seems that in nature that people and animals without testicles do live longer. It's just the way it is. So look, I respect the period. I think we've done some good work on this podcast and I'm proud to, you know, count you as people who have chosen to work with me on this and I'll promote this podcast wherever I can. As far as I'm concerned... You've earned a week off. So when I say, in terms of healthcare, what can I do as an individual? And one of you says, expose yourself in public. And the other says, if you're a man, cut your bollocks off. I don't mind. Just say, we haven't got a lot this week, John. Just say, I think we've had quite an intense conversation. Let's come out of the podcast a bit early. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> More seriously, I think, you know, Ed's touch on this is, is looking after your mental health because everything stems from there. And some of that is getting out in nature. And I was rather taken by Matt Haig's opening paragraph in his book reasons to stay alive which he wrote about mental health and his own problems with it and it starts it says the world is increasingly designed to depress us happiness isn't very good for the economy if we were happy with what we had why would we need more 
How do you sell an anti-aging moisturiser? You make somebody worry about ageing. How do you get people to vote for a political party? You make them worry about immigration. How do you get people to buy insurance? By making them worry about everything. He said, to become calm is a kind of a revolutionary act. To be happy with your own non-upgraded existence, to be comfortable with your messy human self, that would not be good for business, but it would be good for you. So, you know, becoming happy, he seems to say, is a revolutionary act. And actually, therefore, becoming healthy is a revolutionary act. And so looking after yourself is the most revolutionary thing you can do to be happy with who you are. And as we say, take your clothes off and chop your balls off. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful point to end on. And we move to pointless futures. A brief update on the testicuzzi while I still have testicles. Apparently, it's on its way. I'm not sure where from. I'm not sure who's sending. I'm hoping the company is sending me it and they're not sort of resourcing second-hand ones. But in the absence of the testicuzzi, I farted in the bath this week and it felt nice. So (laughs) I'm excited for when it does arrive. So what have we got in terms of healthcare as a pointless and depressing glimpse into the future we might have? Oh, well, I thought we could throw in the American church, which offers a miracle cure, which is actually drinking bleach. Claims to cure 95% of all diseases in the world by making adults and children, including infants, drink industrial bleach. Oh my uh, they call God. it effective alternative healing. Could save your life or the life of a loved one sent home to die. You get to donate $450 in order to receive your blessed sacrament. They refer to it as miracle mineral solution or supplement. And apparently this is where Donald Trump originally got some of his own inspiration from. Clearly, the US Food and Drug Administration does not think that you should be pouring bleach into your throat in any bloody level of dilution. So yes, pointless future. Very, very misjudged, misguided, malevolent, malignant religious recommendations to drink domestos well let's just be thankful then that you know the political class in american leadership wouldn't you know pick up on that and do anything stupid with it and would absolutely shut that kind of nonsense down absolutely i don't know whether i find it more depressing that it predates trump or not i don't know it's a sort of reaction to trump that i would find depressing or the fact that that existed before he said it you don't want the leader of the free world coming up with that sort of shit on his own but equally the fact that it has run longer than that is equally depressing Well, thank you as ever for your company. Thank you for being here. Thanks for downloading the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, do please tell anybody you like. We will be back next week when I am informed we will be discussing fashion, which (laughs) makes me slightly tense and it feels like... You're a fashion icon, John. (laughs) You've got your own unique style that is instantly recognisable. And, you know, in the world of fashion, that's considered something pretty special to have a, a thing that people know you for. And your cardigans have become iconic. Yeah, like Christopher Biggins' glasses. <laughs> you were both doing so well at winning me round until the phrase like Christopher Biggins, which is very rarely the sentence I expect to hear when someone's trying to bottom me up. <laughs> uh, if that has fired off any thoughts in your mind and you would like to get in touch with us, uh, we have our Twitter account and we have our individual Twitter accounts and we have our post bag, which you can email us on and the details are here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. 
And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Uh, we'll be back next Friday with an episode on fashion. Thanks so much for being with us. From Mark and Ed, goodbye. Cheerio. Bye. Take care. Look after yourselves, each other, and the planet. I said it last week. I thought I'd say it again, and it might become a thing. But I thought it sounded okay last week, and I fucking hated myself this week. So that's the end of that potential catchphrase. Fuck you later. <laughs>